time a person reaches their middle adult years, they often have valuable skills, work ethics, family history, spiritual values, and life lessons that they want to pass on. Many of us cherish the same items and values that our parents or someone of significant influence passed on to us. The book of Deuteronomy opens by informing us that Moses was addressing Israel on the first day of the 11th month in the 40th year after they left Egypt, while they were positioned just across the Jordan River from Canaan. This tells us that those to whom he was speaking were either children or hadn't yet been born at the time of the two momentous occasions when their parents had received the law of God on Mount Sinai and when they had refused to enter Canaan. Moses knew he was at the end of his life. He had a great deal to pass on, and this was the time to do it. For these now adult children were on the brink of occupying Canaan. They would need the important lessons he had to teach. The Hebrew title for this book comes from the opening words of the text. These are the words. The Greek translators of the Old Testament renamed it Deuteronomy, meaning second law. The book actually contains Moses' three final sermons. The presentation of recording and recording of these sermons were his final acts of leadership. Interestingly, the format of these sermons is virtually identical to traditional Hittite treaties from the same period. Now, a suzerainty treaty was a binding political agreement between a suzerain, that is an overlord, and his vassals or a nation subject to him, in which the overlord agreed to protect his subjects, and then the subjects for their part paid tribute and showed loyalty. These ancient treaties began with a preamble, a preamble named the Covenant's Initiators, something such as, I am the great king of the Hittites, setting forth this treaty. And that was followed by a historical prologue in which the historical background of the treaty was explained, such as, I took you as my subjects because your forefather served me, and I will graciously take you as my people also. This was followed by general and specific stipulations. That was a list of what the king or the overlord was requiring of his subjects. Then a list of blessings and curses followed. That curses and blessings that would fall on the subjects for keeping or alternatively failing to keep the covenant. And finally, a list of witnesses to the covenant who were usually the gods of the king. In Deuteronomy, Moses' first sermon in chapters 1 through 4 includes the preamble and the historic prologue. His second sermon discusses the general and specific stipulations of the covenant. The blessings and curses are found in Moses' third sermon, and we'll cover those in our next lesson, Lesson 12. Obviously, God used this pattern in order to relate to his people in a way that was familiar to them. However, I must add that Deuteronomy is much more than a treaty. In addition to being longer than traditional treaties, 
Moses's impassioned sermon-like form is indicative of his personal interest and fervor. He was deeply concerned about this younger generation of Israelites remembering their history, understanding the laws by which they were to live, and the significance of obeying God for the sake of their future. Moses' concern was clearly God's concern, for the opening verses indicate that his words had come directly from God. Now, as I said, the format of Moses' first sermon, chapters 1 through 4, equates to the preamble of a treaty of the day. We see that in verses 1 through 5. And the remainder of this sermon can be likened to the historical prologue of such treaties, in which history of the listed parties is described. Moses had a point to make, and it came from not-too-distant history. The Israelites' departure from Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, just 40 years earlier. He emphasized that the Israelites left at God's command and with his instructions to go in and take possession of the land he swore he'd give the patriarchs. Verse 8. It was a timely encouragement that what they were about to do in taking the land, they would be doing at God's express command and as a result of his promise. Next, Moses recalled the occasion recorded for us in Exodus 18, on which he'd chosen men from each tribe to assist him in judging disputes. Moses emphasized the reason he'd needed help, saying, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, increased you a thousand times as he promised. The fulfillment of God's promise to increase their numbers would have encouraged the Israelites that God would also keep his promise to give them Canaan. So these words of encouragement were followed then by warnings in the remainder of chapter 1. Specifically, Moses reminded them that their parents had not trusted God and refused to enter Canaan. And then they'd sinned further by later attempting to enter Canaan against his express command. Moses wanted to be sure the younger generation understood the severe consequences of rebelling against the Lord and that they didn't repeat their parents' mistakes, their parents' sins. Chapters 2 and 3 contain further encouragement and warnings from events that had occurred in just the past year. As Israel headed to the plains of Moab in anticipation of entering Canaan, God instructed them not to harass their relatives, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, since their lands were God-given. Well, this fact would have encouraged the Israelites of the certainty of receiving their own God-given land inheritance. Furthermore, the Lord had already given the Israelites military victory over the Amorite kings Sihon and Og in the Transjordan. Two and a half tribes of Israel were settled there. Finally, while up to this point the Israelites had only known Moses' leadership, they could be confident that Joshua would also lead them in accordance with the Lord's instructions. Near the end of chapter 3, Moses told Joshua directly, The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you're going. Do not be afraid of them. 
the Lord your God himself will fight for you. After reviewing Israel's history, Moses ended the sermon in chapter 4 with application to the Israelites' present situation and with some exhortations. He warned them against adding to or subtracting from the Lord's words. Then, included in his warnings regarding idolatry and the importance of remembering God's greatness and glory, are a prophetic description of exactly what happened in Israel's later history. You see, for many generations during which they lived in Canaan, their idolatry provoked the Lord to anger until he finally scattered them among other peoples. Those who survived embraced the gods of the land in which they were living. However, when a small, distressed remnant realized their need to seek the Lord with all their hearts, the Lord allowed them to return, just as Moses foretold. So in his first sermon, Moses reviewed Israel's history, pointing out their inclination to rebellion and God's record of faithfulness. On 15 different occasions in his first two sermons, Moses exhorted the Israelites to remember. They hadn't lived through all the history he reviewed for them, but the lessons were ones they should have known and should definitely remember. Like every good teacher, you see, Moses taught by repetition. Because we're forgetful, we too need to study God's word continually. What a great principle for us. We are forgetful, and we need to study God's word continually ourselves. Moses told the Israelites not to let these lessons fade from their hearts, but to repeat them to their children when they were sitting at home and when they were walking along the road. In other words, to repeat God's words in various times and ways until it was impressed on them. They needed to keep the law continually before them so they wouldn't forget it. Many people will say they've never forgotten a particular piece of advice, maybe a phrase or a story, because their parents repeated it so often. Similarly, you may not recall the details of some of the Bible's stories after one reading, or even two, but with repeated readings through the years, you will. If the God of the Word studies are your first time going through the Bible, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will whet your appetite so that you choose to spend the rest of your life reviewing and studying it. You can use a variety of methods. Perhaps you'll spend a year searching out all of God's promises, or comparing the four Gospels, or studying biblical prayers, or carefully making your way through one of the minor prophets. Personally, I don't have an especially long memory. I've only begun to easily recall the details of some Bible stories that I first heard more than 50 years ago because I've heard, read, and studied them over and over again. Each time through, by God's grace, I remember more. Have you ever thought about making a conscious decision to spend the rest of your life studying God's Word so that all of its truths are deeply impressed on you? 
What technique might you employ to review some of what you've already studied? Have you considered memorizing key verses? Sharing information with others. Oh, that is one of the best ways to remember it for oneself. Any teacher can tell you that. With whom might you begin sharing what you're learning? And if you're already teaching, have you learned the art of repetition and review? Since Moses' first sermon ended with a comment about enjoying long life in the land, before moving on to his second sermon, he addressed the immediate need for safety by setting aside three cities of refuge in the Transjordan, where two and a half Israelite tribes were busy settling. The final verses of chapter 4 introduce Moses' second sermon, which actually begins then in chapter 5. In his first sermon, he'd passed on lessons from history, and now in the second one, he reviewed God's law. Continuing to follow the pattern used in secular treaties of the day, Moses first discussed the law's general stipulations and then its specific ones. Now, God first made his covenant with the Israelites at Horeb, that is Sinai, yet in Chapter 5, verse 3, Moses stated that it was made with all of us who are alive here today. Obviously, the many thousand Israelites with whom the covenant had been made at Horeb 40 years earlier were dead. Moses was speaking in a corporate sense. The clear distinction he intended to make was between the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai and the patriarchal covenant that had been given to their ancestors more than 400 years earlier. Make sure you catch this now. The patriarchal covenant guaranteed their forefathers the eventual inheritance of Canaan, and that was unconditional, an unconditional promise of God. But it would be a grave mistake for the Israelites of Moses' day to assume They could remain and prosper in Canaan unconditionally. The Sinaitic covenant that Moses' audience lived under was conditional. Enjoyment of the land and blessing in the land were conditional upon Israel's obedience to the covenant requirements. Moses was concerned about the Israelites continuing to enjoy and remain in the land generation after generation. This was the reason he preached on the covenant stipulations and urged them to obey. And as he pointed out, obedience is far more than just outward conformity. It needs to flow from the heart out of personal love for God. So with this as the backdrop, Moses seemed to have two goals in mind in his second sermon. When the law was first given to their parents at Sinai, the Israelites weren't living in Canaan. But this younger generation soon would. Although the covenant was the same as that given at Horeb, it needed some amendments based on the changing condition of being in the promised land. So Moses' first goal was to give a Deuteronomic law code that emphasized and expanded upon the laws in a way that was relevant to their new life in Canaan. 
Then Moses' second goal was to encourage the people to embrace the covenant for themselves. This is in line with secular covenant arrangements also. Each successive generation of people under the covenant had to subscribe to the terms sworn to by their ancestors. Moses began by restating the Ten Commandments, the foundation of God's moral law and part of the covenant's general stipulations. All of the specific stipulations flowed from these. The first four of the Ten Commandments address one's relationship to God. Our relationship to Him is not only critical to heartfelt obedience, it's also the basis for healthy relationships with others. Thus, the last six commands involve human relationships. The older covenant had agreed to these covenant stipulations, but was unable to keep them. Moses told the younger Israelites that the Lord had heard their parents' agreement and had said to Moses at that time, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children after them. In this statement, oh, don't we hear the heart of God? He knows our lives work better when we follow his laws. He's given them to us to benefit us. He wants us to enjoy full and blessed lives. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you, Moses said, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Yet the Israelites' hearts were not inclined to follow the Lord. Like us, they needed to have their hearts made new. That need became the basis of the new covenant foretold in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And it was instituted by the work of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You see, a primary mark of a person who's entered the new covenant by faith in Christ is a sincere desire from the heart to please God out of genuine love for him. Well, after restating the moral laws of the Ten Commandments, Moses preached about the need for the Israelites to remember who they were and what God had done in chapters 6 through 11. The obligations of the law were to be viewed in light of God's grace to them as sinners. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 has long been known in Jewish tradition as the Shema on the basis of the verses, verse 4's injunction to hear its words. The Hebrew word Shema means hear. Jewish people consider these verses their basic statement of faith. Verse 4 is a very important statement of monogamy. Monogamy. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, it says. It's on this basis that Jews have rejected the doctrine of the Trinity. Christians believe the Shema does not preclude a Trinity, but affirms the oneness of purpose and consistency within the triune Godhead. Jesus quoted verse 5 of the Shema when asked what was the most important of all the commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
In verse 6, the Shema states, These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Deuteronomy emphasizes the importance of the heart. If we've been tempted to believe that outward compliance is what God desires, Deuteronomy makes it abundantly clear that the obedience to which he calls us is an obedience that comes from the heart. We obey because we love and trust him. Loving God is our greatest duty and privilege. Verses 7 through 9 say we are to impress upon our children that the basis for obedience is our love for God. The late Pastor Ray Stedman has pointed out that Moses' second sermon warns of three primary perils, the perils of prosperity, the peril of adversity, and the peril of neglecting to teach your children. And these perils are addressed in the remainder of chapter 6. Now, to keep the laws of God requires humility. Our God knows, our great God knows better than we, and is worthy of our obedience. Chapter 6 through 11 encourage humility. In chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, Moses urged the Israelites to remember the Lord when they became prosperous. Gratitude is a mark of humility. Ingratitude is often the first mark of a drift away from him. In chapter 7, Moses reminded the Israelites that God didn't set his affection on them or choose them as his instruments to drive out the Canaanites because the Israelites were powerful. No, God's affection and choice were results of his grace and further reasons for humility. Chapters 8 and 9 cites additional reasons for humility. The Lord had humbled them causing them to hunger and then feeding them with manna to teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Israelites needed to remain humbly dependent on him. He also told them that after they were settled in the land, they weren't to think that they prospered by their own abilities or their hearts would become proud. They needed to humbly remember that their ability to produce wealth comes from the Lord. Then the Israelites also needed to remember that they inherited the land because of the Canaanites' wickedness, not because of their own righteousness or integrity. In reality, they'd been stiff-necked, and that alone was cause for humility. For the judgment that was about to fall on the Canaanites could also fall on them, Moses warned. In chapter 10, Moses reminded them that although everything in heaven and on earth belongs to the Lord, he chose and loved the Israelites. This was motivation to humbly fear, obey, and love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, as verse 12 says. To praise him, as mentioned in verse 21 to circumcise one's heart, as verse 16 says, and to love others, as mentioned in verse 18. Beginning in chapter 12 and ending in chapter 26, Moses preached on specific laws. Now, Moses' intention wasn't to be exhaustive in discussing specific laws, but to teach the Israelites to apply the principles of the Ten Commandments to all areas of their lives 
by giving them certain specific examples. In choosing these examples, he had in mind their pending possession of the land. Although much of what he said is a repetition of the laws given earlier, it was important that the younger generation heard them. Again, a good teacher often teaches by repetition. All the specific laws Moses addressed can ultimately be seen as encouragement to live holy and loving lives. Now, I'm going to move rather quickly through these chapters, just summarizing main points. Chapter 13 discusses honoring God's word as holy. The Israelites were warned about the danger of allowing signs and wonders or the suggestions of loved ones and troublemakers to usurp the final authority of God's word. Temptations to seek sensational religious experiences, follow the religion of relatives without thinking for oneself, and be swayed by the often very vocal opponents of God's truth? Those things have always existed. Yet we must honor God's word as our final authority. Chapter 14 talks about tithing and observing the God-ordained distinction between clean and unclean food as a means of maintaining holy and loving lives. Chapter 15 addresses ways of showing generosity as evidence of loving God and personal holiness. Chapter 16 reviews the three great festivals of Israel. Attendance at the festivals was an opportunity to love God by remembering his goodness to them. The chapter ends by discussing the importance of ensuring justice prevailed in the promised land. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people are urged to to promote justice as a way of loving God and loving others. Chapter 17 discusses the justice system as well, and chapter 18, in chapter 18, the people were told to provide for the Lord's ministers and not follow the evil ways of the world. They were banned from practicing human sacrifice, divination or sorcery, witchcraft, or consulting mediums and spiritists. Instead, they were to be holy or blameless before the Lord. Now, chapter 19 further addresses matters concerning justice in the land. The Lord commanded the Israelites to appoint three cities of refuge west of the Jordan after they entered Canaan, just as Moses had done for the eastern tribes in the Transjordan. A ruling concerning the need for witnesses in trying cases was also given. One witness wasn't enough to settle a matter. God's people were to act justly, giving the benefit of the doubt, while decisively punishing confirmed sin. Chapter 20 talks about war. The Lord would ensure their victory if they led holy and loving lives. They shouldn't fear reducing the size of their army, since the Lord would fight on their behalf. Many of their young and strong men would have been excused on the basis of the listed possibilities, but Israel had nothing to prove in going to war. They were to destroy completely all people groups in close proximity to them at the Lord's command. It was his judgment. However, they were to attempt to live at peace with distant enemies. In chapters 21 through 26, there are two particular passages of interest I'll point out. 
Chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, gives a ruling concerning divorce. Now, the passage neither condones nor condemns it, but is primarily focused on a ruling for remarriage. Jesus clearly stated that divorce was never God's ideal. A second passage of particular interest is chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, which discuss leveret marriage, a provision for those who died without leaving an heir. In leveret marriage, the brother of a dead man would marry his brother's widow and provide a child to carry on the name of the dead brother. A living brother who took such a role came to be known as a kinsman redeemer. He redeemed the bride of the dead brother, paying a price, and doing what the dead brother could not do for himself in order to ensure that his name was not blotted out. In the book of Ruth, Boaz's marriage to Ruth is an example. The role of kinsman redeemer is a type of the Messiah who redeemed us. Now, as we'll see in the next lesson, the information Moses was giving the Israelites was preparing them for a covenant renewal. Those who heard him preach on the law's stipulations had to consider whether they were willing to enter the covenant. Their parents had faced the same decision. Moses was faithful in explaining the covenant's terms, but each individual in every generation had to decide whether or not they would embrace it. You see, every person chooses to enter a covenant relationship with God for him or herself. That is still so true today. Every person chooses to enter a covenant relationship with God for him or herself. I imagine you've heard it said, and it's so true, God has no grandchildren only children. We can't inherit a covenant relationship with him. We mustn't think we belong to him by association with a a church, a, a Bible study, or because of our relatives' faith. We enter the covenant relationship God offers us today by personal faith in Christ and his atonement. Entering that covenant and receiving his salvation is as simple as declaring with one's mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in one's heart that God raised him from the dead. It's a matter of outward profession and inner trust. And it's not something someone else can do for us, nor we for anyone else. It's a personal choice. Moses knew that receiving the law from their parents wasn't enough. The younger generation had to embrace the covenant for themselves. They needed a personal love for God, love for him. That was at the heart of their success. Now, not everyone will be eager to receive what we share. But those who sense that we truly love, we truly care for them, and genuinely love God, those are likely to be the most receptive. It's hard to miss Moses' personal love for the Lord and for the Israelites in reading Deuteronomy. To the world, genuine love for God and for others is a curiosity. How 
seriously are we taking our obligation to pass God's truth on to others? Perhaps we should also ask ourselves what we're currently doing to build up the faith of younger believers, to help them apply God's word to their current situations, just as Moses helped the younger Israelites apply the law to their new lives in Canaan. Moses wanted the Israelites to succeed. Do we share Moses' passion for helping the next generation of believers succeed? Are we developing friendships and mentoring relationships with younger believers? Moses passed on lessons from history and the law to the younger Israelites. Friend, you and I, we have valuable lessons from our own history and a rich storehouse of lessons from God's precious word. It's time to pass them on.